Hello, my name is Patricia, and this is the Poetry P podcast. Welcome. If you were listening last time, you'll have heard George Sweet come along to do a reading from his book, The Way a Poem Emerges, A Haiku Trinity and Beyond. And we had a chat about the haiku form too. Well, today he's back to talk about the bit we didn't talk about last time, Beyond. What is the difference between a haiku and a short poem? We'll talk about how he sees it, and I wonder if you're going to agree with him. Do you think it's important to differentiate between the two? Maybe you don't. What do we, as poets, have to do to make the literary world hold haiku and its related English language poems in the high regard that the Japanese hold theirs? And while I think about it, do the Japanese hold their haiku in high regard? Crikey, I've got a bit of research to do. Why don't you tell me what you know? Write me an email or tweet. You'll find both myself and George on what I guess we should now be calling X. Now, we're going to be talking and thinking a lot about the essence of haiku this year, its development in both the Japanese and the English-speaking sphere, and the relationship between haiku in Japanese and English. And I'd like to discuss what differences there are in the haiku that we write across the various different English-speaking spheres. So please, any input you have, do share it with me. Now, before George and I get to it, just a quick reminder that if you're listening in real time, that's January 2024, the haiku sinryu submissions have closed for this period, but I'm reading your split sequences until the end of the month. And, of course, you can always add haiku and senryu to the video prompt on the YouTube channel. Linda, our YouTube editor, will be choosing her favourites to feature on the podcast and in the next journal. And lastly, on the website, you'll find an email sign-up. Only poets on the mailing list will be offered extra opportunities to have their work featured in journals. And... I'm very excited to tell you that there'll be a print anthology this year. And guess what? Only poets on the list will be eligible to submit their work. Okay, reminders over. Here's George. Today, I'm thrilled to be welcoming George Swede back to the podcast. George, hello. It's nice to have you back. How have you been since the last time we were here? Oh, very, very, very well. Thank you. I'm looking forward, and I'm looking forward to this uh, second uh, chapter. Me too. And now, our listeners and our viewers might remember, George, that you were here before reading from your book, The Way a Poem Emerges, A Haiku Trinity and Beyond. But we didn't quite finish last time. We left everyone dangling, having posed the question, when does a haiku become a short poem? And when does a short poem become a haiku? And I was thinking, you know, why do we bother about this? Why is this question important? But I'm becoming rapidly aware that, and you might disagree with me, George, that our art form haiku isn't necessarily taken seriously. And if we don't take it seriously as poets, then why should other people? And if we can't define a haiku and show how it's different from a short poem, then we're not taking it seriously. 
even just recently, I said to you off, off air, I was on holiday and I was listening to a lot of poetry and some of it on very major poetry podcasts purported to be haiku. Uh, and so many of the people talking about haiku, first of all, gave let slip that little tiny clue that they don't quite know what they're talking about by referring to haiku as haikus. I always think that's a bad sign when they, when they first start talking about that. And then they go on to read their haikus and they are, well, they have no bearing or very little bearing on haiku as we know it, as we know it. In, But they do obviously have three lines and often 17 syllables and, and that's about it. And I, I just find myself getting really, really cross about that. So I was going to ask you, George, does this make you cross or are you much more chilled than I am about this? Well, I've had a lot of more time to get chilled about it <laughs> my age, but uh, oh, I, I agree. It, it, it's a telltale sign, haikus. We can thank the Beats for that term. Jack Kerouac and, and Ginsburg, they all refer to uh, the haiku as haikus in the plural. It's like saying mooses instead of moose. And uh, they don't know that. And of course, uh, poets uh, who aren't part of the haiku uh, establishment uh, who take a dip at, the, at writing this uh, are more influenced by the people like the Beats than they are by haiku poets. So uh, therein lies a problem that's probably unsolvable. And it's just a telltale sign that will continue to exist. And we can be mildly snobbish at our end and <laughs> Look at those fools. <laughs> anyway. Oh, actually, you've got a point. I hadn't I hadn't put the haikus um, and linked it with the beat poets. Of course, that's possibly nearer to your heart, you being that, that side of the Atlantic uh, and me being this side. But, uh, yeah, I will try and be more tolerant, George, going, going forward. But uh, No, well, I also have a lot of empathy for the people who make this mistake because I myself started off as a long form poet, free verse. And I was actually influenced by the beats in my early work. So I admire them and uh, I forgive them. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> someone wants to say haikus, let them say it. <gasps> okay. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. My, my rant is over. Going back to being taken seriously. I think, as I said, one of the ways to be taken more seriously is to try and differentiate between the haiku and, and short poetry. So I'm hoping, George, that you're going to kick off the discussion on this subject, which we will come back to again. And I invite our listeners and um, viewers to feel free to join in the conversation. Email me your thoughts and I'll share them with George. So, George, you're back again to read to us from your book, but from the part of the book that is called Beyond, in which there are poems that you say test the limits of brevity and meaning. So, George, would you care to elaborate on that? How do you differentiate uh, between haiku and short poems? I find it very difficult sometimes. <laughs> and and the only way I see uh, to deal with this issue is to look at what uh, were the rules of engagement, so to speak, for a writer who wanted to write haiku. Well, he can find these rules. And uh, he can find rules for the limerick. He can find rules for the couplet. And then, of course, there's a problem with free verse short form poetry because it doesn't follow rules. 
it can be anything two two words linked uh, in some way or it can be um uh it could be uh, some people might consider a short form uh sonnet that's a sonnet is a short form poem as long as it doesn't follow the rules of a sonnet you know it's sort of more free form but it's sort of vaguely a sonnet the the whole issue really boils down to i think the way to distinguish them is to look at the original definitions the ones that everyone uses and then realize that the practitioners of these various forms are determined to be original and to break some of those rules. Otherwise, they're just like everybody else, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the rules get bent and twisted. And there are basically two ways that people twist these rules. One is the, uh, the, the form itself. So instead of uh, writing haiku in three lines or one line or whatever, they write it in four lines. There's one uh, haiku poet that uh, his, uh, he only wrote four liners. And, and that he, when I, I remember when I received these uh, his submissions when I was editor of Frog Pond, I knew this was going to happen. I saw his name, well, yeah, four line haiku, 10 of them. And they were good, you know, most of the time. And so but he, that made him different and stand out. So basically, the another way that uh, poems the rules change is in terms of content. So uh, the first way, the the according to the form, it's just that's fairly straightforward because uh, you know he's he's a writer of couplets, but now he's written a one-liner, uh, and he he said, well, you know, I, I I believe that they should be this this reads better as one line. Mm -hmm. Okay, you find the same argument in haiku, so uh, <laughs> it it's, becomes very difficult. As do most things in life, when you start to try to parse one thing from another, it's extremely hard sometimes when you get to the borderline uh, between the two. Which one is a haiku? Which one is a couplet? Which one is um, you know somebody's free form? idea of what things should be that's the reality of it i think there's no real solution and i have no real answer other than to use myself as a uh, as a sort of example of uh, constantly trying to do something different so i have a long list of different poems i've tried i've got a list here i made out i've tried over the years uh, vertical poems uh, side by side poems uh, rhyming poems, two-word poems. I've published a couple of collections of two-word poems. And, um, of course, visual poems. I've got a whole collection of just visual poems. Haiga, lots of Haiga, and wonderful artists that collaborated with me. Uh, I've done uh, short versions of uh, sh short versions of short stories that are entirely um, written in, as homophones. So, you know, uh, like flower, flower, uh, bear, bear, and pear, pear, but written with a, a storyline. Mm -hmm. So that was a challenge, but that was fun. Um, and run-ons like uh, graveyard, dusk, kill deer, all in one word. Were, uh, yeah, graveyard, dusk, kill deer. So the graveyard ends in D, and that begins dusk. And then... Uh, anyway, so 
there are many poem, poets like me who have, uh, you might think this is a haiku poet, but you look into his background. If he comes from an interest in poetry, he's probably got a whole bunch of experimental work that he's tried and he's actually maybe published, but he's known as a haiku poet. That's basically what's happened to me. Uh, I'm only a haiku poet. If you look online, that's how I'm identified. But uh, I myself see another person as a, I see myself as a poet because I've tried all kinds of things and published non-haiku poetry. And so it's a complex situation. People who come at it from another angle, and there are lots of those in, in the haiku world, come at it from, let's say, uh, a religious viewpoint, a Buddhist viewpoint, or some other uh, variation of Buddhism. And, uh, and that's perfectly fine. You can certainly find serenity in haiku and the composition of, let's say, nature haiku and meditating in a in a let's say quiet spot in a garden or something and you're in touch with everything and you feel this connectedness and you want to write a haiku about it the danger there of course is that uh, you're going to be too literal and not poetic enough it's not going to be a metaphorical element there it'll just be purely descriptive mm -hmm. and uh, that's what I think plagues a lot of haiku that you see especially ones that never went past an editorial scrutiny uh, online. You know, you see them on Facebook, sim simply a, a transcription of what they experienced literally. Mm -hmm. You know, they felt uh, really, uh, felt this wonderful solitude and the beauty of the flowers and the buzz of the bees. And that's the end of the poem, mm -hmm. you know, basically. So you've got these two, two different uh, uh, approaches in haiku. People who came from it came to it from a poetry background, and people who came from it just from a more Zen-like mental health sort of uh, uh, approach. Okay, you've got my brain ticking again, George. It's probably probably not for this oh. podcast, but but to go back to um, your your chap who writes the four liners or who was writing the four liners, and I think this applies to you too. You and he might be experimental, but you knew what the original rules were and you've chosen to yeah. divert in some way. So there's a method or there's a method to your madness, if, if you like. You, you know what you're doing. Well, uh, I don't think I do, really. But... <laughs> <laughs> don't ruin the image for me. Stop. But, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a fantasy, you know, that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, everything is so complicated. Uh, but you're right. Uh, in uh, there is a always this uh, this kernel of reality that exists. Am I really writing a haiku or not? Does this really gone too far from mm -hmm. uh, what the original rules were that were sometimes strictly adhered to? And um, yeah, I, I had that. I had that inclination. Mm -hmm. I, I try to keep myself centered properly. When you when you think about the evolution of haiku in the English language, when it first started out, um, it was this slavish addiction to five seven five, and you know the the whole idea was wrong headed because of the syllable count in Japanese being different than in English. Mm -hmm. But people stuck to it; they were fiercely protective of that idea. 
Yeah. It caught fire in the educational establishment and mm -hmm. students in grade school were taught about the haiku 575. And the focus was lost about poetry because it became much more important to talk about syllables and look how they're counted. Here's a haiku poem. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. But you've just let on, actually, George, that you actually know what you're doing. And you know when you've gone outside the boundaries of the, the haiku world. So I'm just thinking, shall we hear some of the poetry that you, you've put in beyond and then you can explain to us why you've put it there, um, what, what your thinking was? Okay, sure. Let's give it a try. In the game of life, for whom am I the avatar? In the game of life, for whom am I the avatar? When I read this one first, and as I listened to you reading it, I, I just wondered, is there such thing? Have we got a definition of a, a monosenryu? And if so, would this be one of them? Um, but I've oh. never thought of differentiating that from a monoku as such before. Oh, that's wonderful. A lovely term. <laughs> be credited uh, with its uh, impending use by many people. <laughs> I like it. Thank you. So, George, why did you put this in beyond? Why is this sort of on the in the borderlines, or or where is it in the in the sort of timeline of poetry here? Well, I think what it has it what it has done is cross the border of of allowable transgressions in haiku because there's um it's become a philosophical statement or question in a way which haiku aren't necessarily supposed to raise so directly there should be uh sort of a the moment should be somehow obvious some some sort of real thing that you're pinioned to and uh in this case there's just the mind at work and the thought process you know, at work in, in my head, basically, where no one else goes. Yeah, I'm going to give you that one. I agree with you on, on this, definitely. <laughs> it's a trend, though, in haiku journals to see this more philosophical work. And it's, I'm a little worried that it's becoming seen as, as a haiku or senryu. I'm sort of glad that you have taken it out and put it in beyond so people can start questioning where it is in the great scheme of things. So I, I thank you very much for that. And then, George, I chose this one. I'm going to read it once and then you can read it properly in your voice. Not one leaf will talk dead body in the woods. Okay, not one leaf will talk dead body in the woods. Not one leaf will talk, dead body in the woods. It makes me smile every time I read or hear it. But George, you didn't choose uh, Kigu as one of your haiku definitions. So I wondered if you could tell me why you wouldn't have put this one into your haiku, haiku about us and nature maybe, why is that? Where? Why have you put this one in beyond? Oh, that's really hard to answer. <laughs> uh, I think um, 
when I was making these decisions, I um, was I probably had switched my channel of thinking into more abstract uh, kind of poetry. And I thought, and I thought, well, this kind of fits in there because it is, in some ways, a bit abstract. Uh, I mean, who who thinks of leaves as being uh, uh, witnesses to a crime? You know, <laughs> so it's a little bit out there. But at the same time, you know, you could say it's a haiku because he's he's uh, made sure that there is a moment that can be identified by anyone. It's the woods. Um, so yeah, it, it, it can be either mm. as a, uh, nature and, uh, and, and us, or, um, you know, a more abstract kind of poem, which basically the ones in beyond the beyond section are, in my opinion, anyway. Well, I'm going to ask you about some, some more of your poetry now. We're, we're going to divert from the book. We'll come back at the end, but we're going to divert a bit and explore some more of your poems in, in the great body of work that you have. And I'm going to ask you if you could read some poems from the Haiku Anthology, which, of course, was edited by Cor van der Heuvel. So over to you, if, if that's okay. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, ha I have three here mm -hmm. uh, that have been widely uh, published and appreciated, which, for which I'm great, grateful. Okay, the first is, Night begins to gather between her breasts. Night begins to gather between her breasts. The next one, mental hospital. My shadow stays outside. Mental hospital. My shadow stays outside. And the third one, leaving my loneliness inside her, leaving my loneliness inside her. My question to you, George, would be, where would you put these poems in in your book? Oh, well, the first one, um, I would say, is a nature and us, because night is part of uh, nature, so to speak, a, a physical process in the world. And the other two, I would say, uh, are a haiku about us. Uh, the mental hospital, you could argue, of course, outside. Well, <laughs> that's, that's something about us. Uh, but, you know, anyway, I see it as something very personal and related to our existence. And certainly the last one, uh, the sexual experience, uh, haiku about us. There's nothing else in there but us, basically. Yeah. And I know you have thoughts about this one. I do. Um, <laughs> and I, I think people will be surprised I've chosen this one because they might remember McClintock's poem, which was in a previous podcast, the one with Keith Everts on vulgarity which he, he chose to illustrate the topic with. And that one was pushing inside until her teeth shine, Michael McClintock. And people, if they've listened to that, will know that I really didn't like that one. I could appreciate the craft. I just didn't. 
I found it really distasteful. And I apologised at the time because it probably just could be me with my lovely convent education there. But I do find this one quite violent and very self-centred because it seems to me all about the bloke and his satisfaction. I'm not feeling the other side of the story in the, in this one. And with yours, I think it, that's a different kettle of fish altogether in that, again, well-crafted and much like McClintock, you've used words that um, are totally appropriate, or I feel are more appropriate for for your poem. Both of you have chosen words that are appropriate for the the tone of your poem but there's a the the sabi aesthetic you know the melancholy and the loneliness in your one i think just brings a little extra to it for me and mcclintock's again i go back to it i keep going back to this poem people will think i'm just obsessive but to me it's all about the sexual release of McClintock's protagonist in the poem. Whereas yours is more about really just what you've said, leaving the loneliest inside about trying possibly and failing to find a meaningful connection through sex. I I don't know, could be wrong. What what do you think? Gosh, I don't know. I like what you're saying. (laughs) Uh, I think uh, <clears throat> both uh, McClintock's and, and my poem are very, reveal a dominant male outlook, mm. which I think was prevalent at the time we were both uh, writing. McClintock being uh, earlier than me, and I actually admired his poem when I first read it, I think in the 70s. I believe this was published in Core's 1974 book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And I thought, wow, this is something. Uh, but I agree also that mine is more gentle. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, but, you know, a writer or a painter or whoever, whomever you're talking about as an artist is one of the poorest um, explainers of his own work. <laughs> Other people who, who have insights and, and see things that you just don't see. And then now you mentioned what you did. I thought, oh, yeah, that's... That's really interesting. <laughs> and I, I had this uh, experience too with Robert Hirschfield, Hirschfield who um, wrote three articles on my work, uh, published in various uh, magazines, two online and one uh, hard copy. And he, uh, he, what he discovered in the poems that he talked about in these three different articles I thought, my goodness, this guy, this sweet is amazing. <laughs> I thought, this is he's writing about someone else. <laughs> okay, and, George. So remind me, who is this? I've got to chase this, this these articles up. Who was writing these articles? Robert Hirschfield. I'm gonna chase that up. And if I find them in time, I'll put them in the show notes so people can <laughs> can, can discover a bit more about you that you didn't know yourself. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Now, I wanted to go back to your book, and I wanted to have a look at something that was written on the back in the blurb. Now, P.G. DeChico, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, says of you that you are an imagist in the true sense. Now, what that means to me is a comparison with the likes of Ezra Pound and F.S. Flint, Amy Lowell, etc. People who were writing 
an association of poets, if you like, who were active in the second decade of, of the last century before the First World War. And F.S. Flint, who we've actually met before in a podcast, did give um, some of their principles. And his he said that imagery or the images movement was about the direct treatment of the thing, whether subjective or objective. It used absolutely no word that doesn't contribute to the presentation of the poem. And as regarding rhythm, that the poems were composed in a sequence of the musical phrase, not in the sequence of the metronome. And you've sort of mentioned that already about the, the sort of rhythm and the musical phrase of poetry. But is that how you see yourself? Might be difficult again, given our previous conversation, but what do you think? Oh, I'd like to see myself that way, for sure. <laughs> uh, I do strive towards that. And I'm a great admirer of the imagists. Uh, I treasured uh, Pratt's uh, The Imagist poem uh, uh, for a long time. It was one of my favorites. And uh, it gave everything sort of a backbone mm -hmm. and tied haiku into the uh, mainstream of poetry in, written in the English language. And so, yeah, it's, 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 I'm really glad you brought that up. And it should be a required reading for all aspiring haiku poets, because this is, this is where the fusion of haiku as a poetry, as, as poetry, uh, occurred with mainstream poetry. It occurred through the imagist poets. And uh, then the strands of this of haiku imagery permeated subsequent mainstream poets like William Carlos Williams and others. And um, uh, it's, uh, I heartily recommend that. You can put that in your liner notes, I hope. I will well. definitely put that in my in my notes um, to to guide people. But you said then that it's it's sort of recommended reading, or you would certainly recommend reading it for if you like a background of the, the beginnings, if you like of of haiku. But it's the yes. beginning of haiku in English, and so I'm going to ask you a question, probably unfairly, and put you on a, on the spot. Do you see or do you think that we have now developed a form all of our own in English, albeit related back to, to the Japanese short form. But have we made this thing, this English language haiku, a thing of our own now? I feel like I'm a bullseye in a target. <laughs> okay, that's not fair. No, I'll take okay. that back. <laughs> no, 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 no problem. Let me just speculate wildly. Um, yeah, I would say yes, because just simply because of the structure of the two languages, English different from Japanese, and there, therefore any haiku written in English is going to be identifiable as if you translate it back into Japanese, it's 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 uh, going to be different from what the Japanese normally write in their own language. Um, I think linguistic scholars would, would probably agree with that because they would do a very deep in, in search uh, of the terms of language used and so on. And uh, it's only natural because the culture is different, although there are a great variation of English language cultures. And you find this in, 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 in the terms that are used in haiku. Australian haiku have terms that we don't use in Canada. And, uh, and then when you read translations of European writers uh, of haiku, my goodness, another world, other worlds open up. 
So I think just by virtue of cultural differences, language differences, each uh, each language that a poet chooses to write in, the haiku that emerge are going to be different from the Japanese original. Mm-hmm. Just just out of necessity, out of just natural, the way things naturally go. Yeah, and I think, um, George, apologies for putting you in, in that bullseye there. Any hate mail should be directed at me, not, not George. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, please remember that we're not saying that it is a, a totally different thing, just that, as you said, just purely in lingual language terms, it's going to be a different type of thing, isn't it, really? Because we, we cannot emulate the Japanese language. The Japanese language cannot emulate ours. But we do have roots, similar roots, That's like right. the plant, plant world, I suppose. You know, various plants have the same root type or the same family, but they are different. But I was just thinking for something to compare it to, and you just gave it to me. The plant world and the uh, way that different uh, breeds or different kinds of roses are created in different countries by different uh, different means and different soils. And and uh, yet it all emerged from one, mm-hmm. one uh, root originally. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. Just came to me, George. I got lucky there. (laughs) (laughs) I've been lucky all my life. (laughs) We have got to the end. Hopefully we've given people a a lot of things to think about in terms of what's a haiku, what's a short poem, and the inspiration to write both. Because I always think it's a successful end to a podcast when you've heard some poetry that makes you want to go off and write. And certainly whenever I read your poems, George, I want to sit down and do some writing of my own. So I thank you very much for that. But before we go, do you think you could read from your book to us again, please? Today's notebook, neonatal ward. Today's notebook, neonatal ward. Yes, the gap between those two uh, images is quite wide and leaves a lot of uh, openness for speculation. So it's actually pretty good. Who wrote it again? <laughs> I don't know. Some nobody called George Swede, I think. <laughs> George, do you know, it's been a real privilege and an honor to talk to you, to read your book and to have it in my hands with a little note from you in it as well, which, which I shall certainly tre- treasure. And I really hope, because we've been discussing other things behind the scenes. I really hope that you're going to come back and do some more reading and to get us thinking about haiku and other things, shall we say, in the future. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you uh, for these two uh, interviews. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed myself and also discovered a lot of things about myself. Well, that's good. Um, And don't forget, if you would like to read more of George's work, I will put the details of how you can purchase it in the show notes. So, George, it's goodbye for now. And we'll definitely see you again in the future. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. Thank you. I so enjoyed my chat with George and truly his book, The Way a Poem Emerges, A Haiku Trinity and Beyond, is a real treat to read. There is a link in the show notes 
as well as a couple of links to the work Robert Hirschfield has written about George. I'm really interested. We did mention it. Have you ever heard the term monosenryu? Or can I claim it for my very own? As Gollum would say in Lord of the Rings, is monosenryu my precious? And you may have noticed I spoke again about the McClintock poem. I know, am I getting obsessed or what? Pushing inside until her teeth shine. I'm clearly still thinking about it. I will give it a rest after this, I promise. But it strikes me that this is quite possibly an example of a short poem rather than a senryu. The haiku-related family tend to have a bit of ambiguity, don't they? A bit of space, a bit of ma, to let the reader tell their own story in the poem. But this one is quite clear, isn't it? So what do you think? Haiku family or short poem? And if you'd like to hear a little bit more of a discussion about the poem, as I mentioned earlier, Keith Everts talks about it in our podcast on vulgarity. And of course, I'll link that in the show notes too. Okay. As I said, I promise you won't hear this poem talked about for a little while, at least. But do send me your thoughts. Righty-ho. That's it for the day. Thank you for joining me. Don't forget to check the submission diary. But if you're listening in January 2024, you have until the end of the month to get your split sequences to me. You can send solo sequences or you can work on sequences with other poets. Whatever you choose, get them to me by the end of the month. And don't forget the YouTube prompt too. See you soon for the next episode of Poetry P. Until then keep writing. And don't forget, if there is something I've missed from the show notes, just email me. Ciao!